0: It is wonderful to be back in Houston, Texas, in the Torch Center. Our family spent about eight weeks in the Northeast and in Canada, and we're back. And we're in the Torch Center, and we are continuing in our mitzvah series. We are up to mitzvah number 82. This is a really interesting and counterintuitive mitzvah. And again, the mitzvahs are bunched together. Very often we have lots of mitzvahs that are related to a similar subject, and we've been talking about judgment and how to judge and the restrictions of the court and what they have to focus on, and this mitzvah as well is another element of that, and that is that a court is not allowed to render a verdict based upon testimony that is not based upon visual witnessing of an event. If witnesses know that something happened but they haven't seen it that would not be sufficient testimony for the court to rely upon to execute an individual and even though we have very strong indications that a crime happened and we really the logic and everything about the story is telling us that a crime happened but the witnesses didn't see it, we are not allowed to follow that testimony and execute the defendant. Now, the Talmud's example of this is going to make you really mad because it is going to rebel against our notion of justice. But nevertheless, there is a format in which testimony is admissible in court and there is a format which is not admissible in court and we have to follow the format. So the Talmud tells us what's an example of using conjecture in court when witnesses come and they claim that they witnessed a murder and the court, like we mentioned in the past, has to vigorously investigate the matter and we have to do cross-examinations and we have to split the witnesses up and see if their stories match up. And one of the questions that we asked him is, Is this based upon visual witnessing? Did you see it with your own eyes? Or is it based upon conjecture? And the example that it gives is that you saw the murderer running with a sword after the victim and he's saying, I'm going to kill you, I'm going to kill you. And they enter a cave and you're chasing them trying to stop or trying to see what's happening. You're trying to warn them like witnesses must do. And they're in the cave and of the murderer walks out with a bloody sword. And you walk inside the cave and you see the victim who was being chased, slashed up and dying, and the cave is completely sealed. There's no one else there. So we know exactly what happened. We know who the murderer is. We know what the murder weapon is. We know who the victim is, but we didn't see it. We didn't see the crime. We know the crime. We didn't see the crime. That would not be admissible evidence, admissible testimony in court, and the court would not be allowed based upon this mitzvah to execute someone on that testimony. And Tom gives a story about a great rabbi who witnessed a murder, and it was a murder of this sort. He chased someone else into an abandoned building, and the rabbi chased him, chased after him, and he saw the bloody knife, and he saw the person dying. And the rabbi tells him, he says, "Hey, there's only one murderer here. It's either me or it's, or it's you." And it's not me. It must be you. But I'm only one witness, and you cannot kill someone based upon two witnesses. But the Almighty knows exactly what happened. He is reliable to meet out justice. And in the middle of their conversation. In the ruins of the destroyed building, a snake slithered up and bit the murderer and killed him on the spot. And this is, I think, almost like the second part of this idea. The court is not there to give out justice. Why? Because we have the Almighty. The Almighty can do justice whenever he wants. The court is there to follow the rules, follow the instructions, follow the protocol. And if the protocol calls for the court saying we cannot execute someone based upon this testimony, you have to remember that the Almighty can. And the Almighty has his ways, and even though a execution cannot happen in a given court, the Almighty can make sure that justice is done. And the Talmud has a very interesting postscript to this story. We have a murderer and the murderer is bitten by a snake, and the murderer dies because of the venom. And the Talmud says, wait a minute. This is not an appropriate death for a murderer. And the Talmud introduces a very interesting concept. The Talmud says, from the day the temple was destroyed, even though we no longer have a Sanhedrin, and we no longer have capital punishment, nevertheless, the four methods of execution The four kinds of capital punishment are still present. That's what the Talmud says. Temple's destroyed. Sanhedrin disbands. They move elsewhere. They're out of the marble chamber of the temple. We cannot mete out capital punishment, but capital punishment is still in place. How so? The Almighty will take care of it. If someone's supposed to be stoned to death, they'll fall off a building or they'll be trampled by an animal. And if someone's supposed to be burned to death, maybe they will die in a fire or maybe a snake will bite them and the venom, the fiery venom will consume them. And if someone's supposed to be beheaded, they will be taken by the government and that's the preferred method of execution of the Romans and that's how they'll die. Or maybe they'll be attacked by bandits and the bandits will behead them. And someone who must be asphyxiated, maybe they'll drown in a river or maybe they'll die with a disease of diphtheria or some other respiratory disease and they'll choke to death. That's what the Talmud says. That when someone dies in a way that seems like it's an accident, it could have happened to anyone, why they die in this fashion? The Talmud says it could be a reflection of the Almighty taking the place of the court and executing the person in the way that they were supposed to be executed in the way prescribed by the Torah. And therefore the Talmud says, wait a minute, if someone is a murderer, and a murderer is capital crime, and capital crime is supposed to be meted out with one kind of execution, namely beheading, why is this person who committed murder in the ruins of the destroyed building. Why was he bitten by a snake? That is a different kind of punishment. Thomas says, well, he had different crimes. He had different crimes and indeed he was punished for a different crime, not for the crime of murder. So this is an interesting idea that the court is limited. The court does not execute someone based upon information that they know to be true only based upon information they know to be true, based upon witnesses who see with their eyes what happened. They see the crime. If they know the crime happened, and they could testify that the crime happened, but they hadn't seen it, they haven't seen it, that would not be sufficient. Conjecture is not admissible in the court. What's going to be with justice? That is God's responsibility, not ours. If we do our job, let him do his job. Now, as an aside... There's a very interesting question in the Tosfos commentary on this Talmud. Talmud says that since the day the temple was destroyed, there's no longer Sanhedrin, and therefore there's no longer capital punishment. So what happens? Well, if someone's guilty of a crime, they might not take care of them. And specifically, the crime that they commit, and the kind of execution that that particular crime Engenders. That's how the might get back at them. They'll be mauled by an animal. They'll fall off a building. They'll drown in a river, etc. Now Tosfos asks an interesting question, very interesting question. The Talmud says that from the day the temple was destroyed, and we no longer have a Sanhedrin, from that point forward, we no longer have capital crime, and therefore it's the might's job to. Meet out justice for criminal offenders of that sort. But wait a minute, says the Talmud. Don't we know that the Sanhedrin left the marble chamber 40 years before the temple is destroyed? And therefore, why does the Talmud say from the day the temple is destroyed, we no longer have capital punishment and therefore the mighty does it? The animal comes or the river comes or they're taken by bandits. They're bitten by a snake. Why is that from the day the temple was destroyed? It should be from 40 years before the temple was destroyed. If the temple was destroyed in the year 70. Well, we know that 40 years prior, so the year 30, or maybe a couple of years earlier, the Sennachern left. They moved out of the temple grounds, and thereby, and this is something we've talked about in the past, thereby they handcuffed all Jewish courts from doing capital punishment. You cannot do capital punishment anywhere in the entire network of Jewish torts unless the Sanhedrin is sitting in the marble chamber on the temple grounds. So they left and they moved to a different neighborhood in Jerusalem and therefore from 40 years before the temple destroyed, that's the starting point, so to speak, of divine judgment and not Sanhedrin judgment. That's the Tosvos' question. And the answer is even more interesting. The Tosfo says that indeed, the Sanhedrin moved out of the temple grounds 40 years before the temple was destroyed. And so long as they're not sitting in session on the temple grounds, no Jewish court throughout the land and even the diaspora, no Jewish court can mete out capital punishment. Nevertheless, because the temple was still extant, Periodically, the Sanhedrin would move back to temple grounds when there was a given case where it was very important to meet out capital punishment. They would pick up their bags, move back temporarily to temple grounds, thereby restarting the possibility of capital crime to be adjudicated in the land. They would adjudicate the capital crime, and then they would leave, go back out of the temple grounds, go back to a place called Chanut, and thereby suspending capital punishment. And then the Tosfos has a very interesting few words, like that particular incident and similar incidents. So Tosfos says, Really, really interesting that there was this famous incident in which during the last 40 years of the temple's existence, the Sanhedrin moved back to temple grounds to do capital punishment. And it's a great mystery what incident is Toast was talking about. What was this important incident when it was important to go back to temple grounds to restore capital punishment? What is it? It is a great mystery. Anyhow, the bottom line of this Talmud is that a Jewish court cannot execute someone in court only via visual witnessing. If you know what happened, and it's indisputable, incontrovertible, you know what happened. You didn't see it? That is not sufficient. That is something we leave to God. Now, the Sefer Chinoch, the book that we are using to guide us through the mitzvot, He gives a reason for this, and it's a really interesting reason. Because, of course, this whole idea violates our sense of justice. Why are you being such a stickler? We know what happened. Everyone knows what happened. He was chasing with the knife that went into the cave. There's no one else in the cave, and we know who killed who. We know that. Why must we see it? So the kind of says something really interesting. He says, conjecture is dangerous. Once you change the gold standard of two witnesses with their own eyes, warning the person not to do the crime, the person saying, yes, I know what's going to happen, I'm doing it nonetheless, and then they witness the alleged criminal doing the actual crime, once you move away from that standard, and then you open up to discretion of the court, Who knows how far that will go? In this case, this case is a slam dunk. We know who killed who in the cave. But the second we say, well, you don't have to see it. As long as you know. Well, what does that mean? That's kind of nebulous. That leaves it up for interpretation. And once you rely on the discretion of the witnesses of the sages, there's going to come a point in time when someone who was innocent – Is going to be executed. And again, the principle of capital crime in Judaism is that it's not our job to do it, it's God's job to do justice. And we are limited to doing only a very specific amount of oversight and justice, so to speak, in the event that it is totally indisputable and the money wants us to partner with Him on the sacred task of doing justice. But in the event that there's any possibility that anything could come out of a situation wherein someone who is innocent is going to be executed, that's too dangerous. And therefore, that door was slammed shut. The only testimony that's admissible is when the witnesses see it themselves. Now the Savior as he always does, he likes to give us some other aspects of these laws. So for example, he tells us something really interesting. You cannot combine sins. Suppose you have the following instance. Two witnesses claim that the person committed a crime. A crime that's so severe that this warrants capital punishment but they don't agree what the crime was. One of them says, he violated Shabbos. One of them says, he did idolatry. Both of them are punishable by death, but they're not the same crime. So the halacha is that we cannot combine that testimony because they're different sins. That is not admissible in court. Well, what about if you have two witnesses, they agree to the same crime? Both of them say this person did idolatry. But one of them said he worshipped the moon, the moon god. And one of them said he worshipped the sun god. That testimony as well is not admissible. We cannot execute someone based upon that testimony. Now, some more interesting laws here. What if the witnesses are not together? Suppose you have a window that accommodates only one person. So there's one witness who looks at the witness and says, oh my, there's a crime happening. So he sees the crime and then quickly they switch places and the other one sees the crime, but they don't see it together. Because those two witnesses were not together at the time of the crime, that too is like a disjointed testimony and that is not submittable, that is not admissible in court what about the following case? You do have two witnesses. And both of them witness the entire crime from beginning to end. But the witnesses don't see each other. So again, suppose you have like a courtyard and there's windows from all sides and there's one witness from the southern part of the building and one of them from the northern part of the building and they both see the crime happening in the courtyard in between them. Two witnesses witness the identical event but they don't see each other. If they don't see each other, that too would not be a testimony that's admissible in court. Now, here is where it gets interesting. Suppose you have one witness from one window in the southern part of the building and one witness from the northern part of the building from a second window. They don't see each other, but they both see the crime. But there's a third person involved. There's someone down there who was warning the alleged criminal, don't do this crime. And this person who's warning the criminal not to do this crime, he sees both the person in the northern side of the building and the person in the southern side of the building. So the Talmud says that this person who's giving over the warning can unite this kind of this threesome into a single unit of testimony. So you have kind of one witness one witness at the bottom, one witness on top, and one witness on the other side, and they are all united into one unit of testimony. Now, what about monetary cases? So the Sefer Chinuch, he frames this mitzvah that we only follow the witnesses when they see something. He frames it only in a case of capital crime. What about in all the other cases of civil law or monetary law? What then? So the Talmud tells us that there's a dispute. One opinion says that with respect to monetary law, even conjecture is admissible in court, while the others say no. Ultimately, the law is that monetary cases also, we cannot rely on conjecture. We have to have witnesses or documentation, etc. We have to have the kind of evidence that is submittable in court. Now, I think this whole subject is a little frustrating. You know, to us, if there is evidence and there is witnesses and we know what happened it's a little bit frustrating that we cannot as a court meet out justice but again the overarching lesson is that in all these matters we have to follow protocol the almighty has his ways of avenging the innocent of avenging the victim of punishing the criminal and we don't need to worry about that we are not the only line of defense. Our jobs do what we must do and we can only mete out justice if it checks all the boxes for what is admissible in court. But I want to add one more point. This will make you happy, I think. I think. It's possible it won't make you happy. It's possible it'll cause even bigger problems. Our just tell us that there was another layer of justice in the land. And that is that a king has extra Torah and extra judicial powers. So there's almost like two systems of justice. You have the Sanhedrin and the network of, of courts, of based-ins, if you will, throughout the land and throughout the diaspora, that they are following the law of the Torah. And then you have a system of justice that is almost unbound by the rules of the Torah. So the Ram tells us like this: suppose there is a murderer who, for whatever reason, based upon a technicality, the court cannot execute such a person. So within the bounds of the laws of Torah, this person is off scot-free. What can we do? We know they're guilty. But for whatever reason, the witnesses got a snag or something happened that we cannot execute this person. If a Jewish king tells us the Rambam, if a Jewish king, so David, Solomon, etc. If they want to execute this criminal, this murderer, not with the laws of the Torah, but with the laws of the kingdom, and with the laws of ensuring a... Just society, the king has permission to do it. Moreover, the court also has the ability, says the Rambam, to execute someone who is not guilty by Torah law because of the protocol and the technicalities. The court, if they find a need that is so pressing, what's called a harass shah, it's a ruling that is temporary. It's limited to this time and space in History, they too can execute someone as they see fit. So I'll give you an example. We know the story of King Solomon wanting to split the baby. So when we read that story, it sounds like it's a joke. It sounds like hyperbole almost. Oh, he's threatening to kill the baby and it's just a ruse. But the truth is, that the king had those powers. He had almost unlimited powers to be able to do crazy stuff that were against the laws of the Torah. And I'd imagine that in a case like ours, if there is conjecture and there is sufficient evidence in the eyes of the king or in the eyes of the court, and they want to act in a way that's outside the bounds of strict Torah law, they would be able to try someone based upon that as well in the kind of other system that exists as well. The system of the laws of the king and the kind of the unique, like, uh, like we have, uh, you know, the suspension of habeas corpus that happens in wartime. And in wartime, there's all these Extra power is given to even today. We have that in uh, in democracies. There's all kinds of rules, but in wartime, somehow, those rules go out because of the pressing need. If there's a pressing need, the court can do something similar in the event they want to uh, curb a rise in in murder or the like. They can do something which is a little bit outside of the bounds of Torah. And I imagine that uh, if there was testimony based upon conjecture, that too would be an instance in which the king – or the court can exercise their extra Torah and extrajudicial power to execute someone like that. Now, of course, that raises a whole other series of questions. And the idea or the notion or the suspicion that a king is above the law, of course, the king has to carry a Torah scroll with him at all times. The king must always remember that he is subjugated to God. And the laws of the king, of course, we read recently in Parsha Shovtim. We'll get to it in many, many hundreds of mitzvot. But the king must be bound by the laws of the Torah and must subjugate himself to God. But nevertheless, there is this carve-out, which I think would resolve some of our discomfort, if you will, with these kinds of mitzvot. There's a carve-out that justice can be done in another system. As always, my email address is... Rabbi, Wolby, at gmail.com, R-A-B-B-I, and last name is Wolby, W-O-L-B as in boy, E as in echo, at gmail.com. I look forward to questions and your comments and your feedback.